Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. After meeting with the church council in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch accompanied by a delegation of well-respected Jewish Christ followers who were sent to confirm the decision that the council had reached concerning the Gentiles. It had been agreed that there was no need for non-Jews to be circumcised before they could begin to follow Christ. However, the council did ask the Gentile believers that out of love for their Jewish brothers and sisters, they refrain from eating blood or meat that had been offered to idols, as it would be most offensive to those of a Jewish background. They also asked them to refrain from sexual immorality as a sign that Christ had indeed set them free from their old way of living. After some time, the Jerusalem believers returned home, leaving Paul and Barnabas to continue their teaching in Antioch. However, it wasn't long before the Holy Spirit began to tug at Paul's heart, calling him to go on yet another missionary journey. We learn in Acts 15 verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of God. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul wanted to go back to check on those who'd come to faith in Christ on their first missionary journey. Barnabas was agreeable, but when he suggested that John Mark be part of their team once more, Paul had a strong objection to taking him. It may seem surprising to us that these two godly men would have come to such disagreement, but it is understandable. After all that had happened before, Paul considered John Mark and wondered, what can you do for this mission? But Barnabas, being such a great encourager, likely looked at his relative from the standpoint of, what can this mission do for you? Though Paul would later be reconciled to John Mark, he could not come to an agreement with Barnabas at this point, and so they parted company. These two leaders did not work together again after that, and although that may seem like a bad thing to us, it really wasn't, as two missionary teams went out instead of just one, and two people John Mark and Silas ultimately benefited from being trained on the mission field as a result. So Barnabas returned to Cyprus taking John Mark with him and Saul travelled in a different direction towards Tarsus accompanied by Silas. 
Passing through the Roman provinces of Syria and Cilicia, they strengthened the churches along the way. Now, Silas, who was also known as Silvanus in the New Testament, had been one of those who accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Antioch after the council in Jerusalem. He traveled with Paul on his second missionary trip and later journeyed with Peter through Pontus and Cappadocia. Silas often served these teachers as a scribe and consequently his name appears in several other New Testament books as well. We'll also soon learn that like Paul, Silas was a Roman citizen. Luke details the beginning of their journey in Acts chapter 16 verse 1. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. It had been five years since Paul had preached in Derby and Lystra, and one can only imagine his joy upon meeting Timothy, a young believer of good reputation, whom Paul would eventually come to view as his own son in the faith. We learn elsewhere in the New Testament that Timothy's mother Eunice and grandmother Lois were both Jewish, and they had diligently taught Timothy the scriptures from a young age. His father, however, was a Greek, which gave Timothy an unusual advantage of being able to minister cross-culturally, as he was both from a Jewish and Gentile background. At the prompting of the Holy Spirit, Paul anticipated that God might use Timothy to unite those two different groups within the church, and so he immediately circumcised Timothy before they left on the journey. We might find it strange that Paul would do that, having just won the battle against the need for Gentile circumcision. But we have to remember that Timothy was Jewish because of his mother, and as a Jew, he should have already been circumcised. Paul did this not because it was necessary for Timothy's salvation, but rather to improve Timothy's ability to minister to both Jew and Gentile alike. Paul knew that they'd be preaching in many synagogues along the way, and he didn't want to limit their ability to minister. Circumcising Timothy removed a potential stumbling block and an opportunity for dispute ahead of time. As it turned out, Timothy would eventually be greatly used to unite Jews and Gentiles when he became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. It seems that from the beginning, Paul viewed Timothy as being his likely successor, and his training began immediately. Verse 6. Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. 
When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. We're not told how the Holy Spirit made these things known to them, but certainly for a time the doors seemed shut to Paul and his companions, and I can't help wonder if that wasn't frustrating to them. But we must notice that it was the Holy Spirit who kept them from preaching the word about Christ in the Roman province of Asia. And when they tried to enter Bithynia, it was the Spirit of Jesus who would not allow them to go in. Eventually, their mission team ended up in Troas, where something remarkable happened that shed light on God's purposes in the closed doors. Luke explains in verse 8, During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen this vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. There's so much in this passage. In verse 8, we're told that they had gone down to Troas. But here in verse 10, the subject changes to we, which really goes to show that it was here in Troas that Luke was added to their group. It was also in Troas that Paul had the famous vision in which he saw a man pleading for help and asking them to come to Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. The group of missionaries immediately concluded that it was in fact God who was calling them to go there to preach the gospel. Luke reveals in verse 11, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. The next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. They immediately made their way to the Roman colony of Philippi. Roman colonies were strategic centers established by small groups of Roman army veterans who had completed their military service. This was Rome's way of maintaining a presence loyal to Caesar in the most important cities of the empire. These men took great pride in their service of Rome. They wore Roman dress, spoke the language and lived by Roman laws. Paul and his companions stayed in Philippi several days before Luke discloses that on the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. This short piece of text is truly remarkable for a whole variety of different reasons. A minimum of 10 Jewish men is required in order for a synagogue to be founded. And we realize just how small the Jewish population of Philippi was because there was no synagogue in that city. Whenever Jewish people found themselves in such a situation, they would traditionally make their way down to the banks of the nearest river to pray. And this is exactly what Paul and his companions do on the Sabbath. 
Though Paul had seen a man calling to him in his vision, there were no men down at the riverbank, only a group of women. And quite remarkably, Luke, in his understated way, tells us that they began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Pharisees were not in the habit of speaking to women, and so we realize just how much the Lord had softened and expanded Paul's heart since their encounter on the road to Damascus. Philippi was new territory for the missionaries in many ways, and yet they followed the Holy Spirit's leading and began to do what they always did wherever they went. They shared the good news about Jesus Christ with whoever they encountered. Verse 14. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman from Thyatira, a city renowned for its purple dye that was much sought after for high-end clothing. I'm sure she thought that she had come down to Philippi to sell her fabric. However, God's purpose was that she hear the gospel. We know nothing of her background, only that she was a worshipper of God and that the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Once Lydia and those of her household were baptized, she invited the disciples to come and stay at her house. Luke says she persuaded them to accept her offer. In fact, the church began to meet at her house and grew to become one of Paul's most steadfast partners in the gospel. His letter to the Philippian church is really one of the most touching and personal of all of his epistles. If Lydia represented the top of society in Philippi, the disciples were about to meet someone who came from the very bottom of that social order. Verse 16. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. A girl plagued by an evil spirit that enabled her to tell people's fortunes had been enslaved by unprincipled people who made an excellent living off of her abilities. Luke describes how she began to follow the disciples about, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. You know, I've always been fascinated by this because taken at face value, her words are true. 
Paul and his friends were servants of the Most High God, and they certainly were telling people the way to be saved. The issue, though, is not with what she said, but rather the way she said it, because her actions were causing such a distraction that they actually kept people from Jesus. The distraction was so bad Paul became annoyed and he turned around and cast the evil spirit out of her. This really speaks to my heart and I think we do well to learn from this event in scripture because even today there are those who speak messages that sound true and yet they actually prevent people from connecting to Jesus. As soon as this girl was set free, she lost her ability to foretell the future. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope for making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. The slave girl's owners cared nothing for her. They only cared about their profits and they were furious when they realized that their hope of making money was gone. And so, turning on Paul and Silas, they hauled them before the authorities. Playing on the crowd's apparent hatred of the Jews, they accused them of throwing the city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. The magistrates had Paul and Silas beaten and thrown into prison. The jailer was careful to confine them to the stocks in the most secure cell of the whole prison. Despite the fact that they had only been doing good, Paul and Silas were mistreated for their faithfulness, and things certainly seemed not to be going according to plan. Some may wonder about that. Surely it seems unfair for these disciples to have suffered in this way. And yet we learn in verse 25 that the disciples were not troubled by their misfortune. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. We cannot miss the fact that when the night was darkest, we do not find Paul and Silas weeping and crying out, Why, God? No, we find them praying and singing hymns. They boldly worshipped the Lord while everyone else in the prison sat and listened to them. Even in the midst of their pain and hardship, the gospel went forth, and they seemed free even in the midst of a prison cell. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. 
you know, I can't help but think that their choice to worship God somehow set everyone around them free as well. God miraculously opened the prison doors and loosed the prisoners' chains, which was good news for all but one. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. Believing his high-value prisoners had escaped, the jailer's first thought was to kill himself for his shameful failure. Paul, however, immediately cried out to stop him. Hardly believing his ears, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. Can you imagine his amazement at finding that though all the prisoners' chains had been loosed, for his sake they had not escaped? No wonder he fell trembling before Paul and Silas and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I'm sure he was not the only one in prison that night who wanted to hear about salvation from these two who had been singing their songs in the darkness. Paul and Silas clearly presented the gospel, explaining that they should believe in the Lord Jesus in order to be saved. They spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer, and to all the others in his house, and what they said had a remarkable effect on all of them. Verse 33 tells us, At that hour of the night the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. What a transformation. The jailer not only washed their wounds, but after being baptized, he welcomed them into his own home and gave them a meal. We can't ignore the fact that this jailer was courting trouble in doing these things for Paul and Silas, but the risk he was taking didn't seem to bother him at all. He was overwhelmed by joy because he and his whole family had come to believe in God. It strikes me as being ironic that Paul and Silas had been the ones in prison, but in the end, it was the jailer who was set free. God had been working according to his plan all along. Knowing that they had no real case against Paul and Silas, the next morning, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. 
The jailer gave them the happy news that they could go on their way, but Paul informed the magistrate's officers that both he and Silas were Roman citizens whose rights had been violated, and he demanded that the magistrates come and escort them from prison personally. Upon hearing this, the magistrates' hearts were filled with fear, for not only was it illegal to treat a Roman citizen in the way that they'd treated Paul and Silas, it was actually punishable by death. One might wonder why Paul and Silas had kept quiet about their citizenship for so long. After all, if they'd said something in the beginning they would have never suffered the humiliation of the public beating and they wouldn't have had to spend the night in jail either. But then they would also not have met the jailer. These two disciples with no thought for themselves followed the Holy Spirit and endured what may seem unnecessary hardship to some in order to achieve God's goal. Look at the effect this news had on the magistrates. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Realizing their error, the officials were alarmed. They knew the punishment they would face if a complaint were made to Rome, and so they were quick to appease the disciples. You may also wonder why Paul refused to allow the officials to get rid of them quietly. Why would he make such a fuss? Well, Paul understood that the magistrate's embarrassment would, in fact, be a protection for the newly planted church in Philippi. If the highest authorities in the city publicly confirmed the disciples' integrity by escorting them out of prison, the other members of the church at Philippi, Lydia and even the jailer, would be safe to continue God's work because their opponents would remember that they had influential friends. After escorting them from the jail, the city leaders politely requested that Paul and Silas leave Philippi, which they did after taking the time to encourage the new believers who met at Lydia's house. It's interesting to note that at the beginning of chapter 17, as Luke speaks of Paul going on to Thessalonica, he reverts to speaking of the group as they rather than we, which many believe indicates that Luke did not leave with them, but rather Luke remained in Philippi to pastor the church in that city. In our next lesson, we'll continue on with Paul as he leads his team further on into Macedonia. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the fact that Paul and Silas, though beaten and imprisoned, were willing to praise you in the midst of the darkness of their cell. Lord, for that truly began the process of freedom 
for the Philippian jailer and many others. Lord, I pray that you would use us in our own circumstances to focus on you and to praise you in a way that is attractive to others, making them ask us how they might too be saved. Lord, let it all be to your glory and for the extension of Christ's kingdom. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you, and I look forward to having you join me next time. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.